came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come into America. Good morning and welcome to the Cats Roundtable. We have one great show for you today. We got Eric Schuffler giving us a report what's going on in New Jersey. Dr. Sky in the skies. Peter King, one smart guy. What's going on in Washington with the State of the Union? Governor Patterson. Uh, we have Anthony Palumbo, state senator, suing the Senate to get, make sure the Constitution is followed. Zach Williams, Albany report. And let's start with my good friends, Michael Stoller, and what's going on in real estate in New York. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. Today I have a prominent retail specialist, okay, who's going to provide his insight about retail, especially today since Vornado just announced that they're writing down their portfolio, including a half a, mil- half a million square feet of space. So I have Corey Zelnick, who is the founder and CEO of Zelnick & Company. So, Corey, what's really happening in retail? Everybody has different opinions. I, I think that um, that will always be the case, number one. Number two, retail is actually pretty good. Um, if you look across the country nationally, retail numbers are up across the board. Sales, um, store expansion, there are more more stores open this year than closed, which is the first time in about 20 years. Uh, but more more locally, uh, a lot of leases have been being signed. Now we're coming back from a lot of vacancies, so there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but a lot of spaces are being filled. You know, with regard to the the, the fact that uh, the Castle Systems just reported that more than 50% of the people have returned to the office, has that helped the retail in New York City? Um, it helps a little bit. Uh, I think the Castle System study is a little skewed in that they don't cover about 75 million square feet of space throughout the city. So their their numbers are lower than what is really going on. They don't uh, cover a lot of the larger landlords. And so what you're finding is Castle puts out 50 or 52 or 53. Uh, the reality is it's probably closer to low 60 percentile, which is still low, but better. Um, but it is still lagging broadly in the Midtown market. Right. But it looks like uh, if you're a coffee shop, or a fast foods type of operator, that's the op- that's the flavor of the month. I've seen increased numbers. There was a change to age report talking about uh, that's increasing the number. What do you see? I see I see that uh, a little slower in in the midtown market again. What, what what we're also fighting a little bit, if that's the right word, is the reality of a three and a half to four day work week that's going to hold. I think now forever. Four days for sure, and then the you know which is no Friday. So it's no, so it's no Fridays or no Monday, and a right? partial Monday, and so you're in that. So that that hurts. That hurts an op- a midtown operator who relies on all five days of business because there, for the most part, is no Saturday or Sunday. So there's some there's some problems there uh, with respect to the coffee shops, whether it's Starbucks or Gregory's or some of the other ones. What you are seeing is repositioning. 
so Starbucks, they've gotten smaller in a lot of locations. Put aside their 30,000-foot roasters Ooh, concept. Yeah, no roaster. Right? But, but you know, their basic store has gotten smaller, and they have done... They basically become a pickup window in a lot of areas. Right, I've, I've noticed that on uh, Second Avenue. It's a pickup pickup window as opposed to a store. That's but, correct. But there's this other chain, uh, Blackstone Coffee. Then there's another one, Mateo. I've seen these small little 600, 500 square feet stores opening up over there. Well, I think one thing's for sure is that the city likes coffee. You can't okay. take five steps without finding a cup somewhere. Okay, so now we're going to talk about, it as opposed to coffee, another stimulant. The CBD stores <laughs> and opening up all over the city yes. over there, you know, uh, legal and illegal. Uh, yes. I, I think that if you look back historically, and we both have been around for some time now, when landlords couldn't rent their space, they took advantage of what they could take advantage of. And this became a growth industry, legal or illegal, but for the most part, legal. And you have small-time landlords with small vacant space, can't get any tenants to bite. We're in a down, you know, down market, especially during COVID. And these guys were out there with money to pay the rent, and they secure their leases. How they're all going to survive when you have three on a block, that, that's beyond me. Uh, with respect to the illegality of what they're doing behind the counter... You know, Mr. Adams uh, may have some, some work on his hands. Right, but they opened up, you know, the two stores in the village recently, and there are more stores planned over there, so that's, that's a, a thing. But you, we were talking the other day, and you were mentioning that there's a trend for the higher-end stores today. Yes, the, the luxury market has really come back. If you took a ride up Madison Avenue today, 57th Street to 72nd, just, just those blocks which we have... Uh, forever called the Gold Coast here in the city. You will see new stores have opened, all high-end luxury brands. You will see signs in the window of coming soon under construction. Again, all high-end luxury brands. These are these are groups that aren't affected by interest rates necessarily, the shoppers for these stores. But many years ago, people were talking about the 57th Street to the 72nd Street as really being an advertisement. As opposed to a true retail, they were... They wanted them to be an advertisement for their for their brands. And that's the case. And, that, and it was there and it was along Fifth Avenue in certain right. locations. But today they sell. The, the, the luxury brands, I mean, the, the richest man in the world, right? He owns LVMH. All of those brands are selling. And what they are finding is that the adver- you know, their, their shopper is not online. Their shopper likes the brick and mortar. And so what happened while New York City was going through its covid disaster, if you will, um, around the country, these brands were thriving. And so they all just waited. And I don't know what the trigger was for the next brand to open. Maybe it was Hermes who relocated across the street and expanded. That started to bring in the other luxury brands to begin their reopenings. Because a lot of these stores have been here before, or they're down in Soho, or they're down in the meatpacking district. And now they're reopening on Madison. So what, what about the restaurants? Are we seeing some new restaurants come into town? There, there is a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit out there in the restaurant business. I, I tell anybody and everybody, and I'll tell you now, if you told me about a restaurant that's closing and will become available, I could have a commitment on that space within two days. Really? There's a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit in the restaurant business. They want to go in. 
They want to take advantage of the infrastructure that the previous tenant put in, so they don't have to spend all of that capital. Change, change uh, the one, paint. One, one man's misfortune is another man's opportunity. You got it. But it, it really is. What about the suburbs? You know, what's happening in Long Island and New Jersey? The suburbs have been very, very strong. Uh, a lot of people are still home, still working from home and not commuting in, and they're out there. And sales have been very, very high. And what's been happening out in the suburban markets is that the cost of development has gone up so much, the cost of goods, construction, and all of that. So what's happening is the existing space is in high demand. And so we're seeing a big, there's a big turn in, in, in retail now. And I know anecdotally speaking to people regarding uh, the Bed Bath & Beyonds that are going to be closing shortly, almost every one of the stores that are going to become available already have commitments from other retailers. What about the opportunities for somebody to buy some retail space? It, it, it's, it, it's a food fight. It's very hard. The deals are hard to come by. The deals are still tight, and they're very risky. They, they still remain risky. It sounds like we're close to back to 2019. We're, we're, you know, in certain areas, for sure, for sure. It's a, it's a, it's a very tight market, especially investment sales slash retail. Very tight. So it's good to be a retail broker today. It's good to be a retail broker, and it's tough to be a retail broker. And what about a retail owner? Retail owner is good with the right tenancy. What, what about Lower Manhattan? Uh, Fida, I, I think it still has work to do. It's still, I know there's a tremendous amount of residential. I know Harry Macklow redid uh, wall, one wall, and it's beautiful, and Whole Foods, and Lifetime, and all that. I get that, but it's still dominated by the workforce that's not really there. Grocery anchored shopping centers is still strong in the suburbs. If you're investing, that's, that's the, the hot ticket. In conclusion, basically, it's a good time to be an owner. It's a good time to be a retailer. But you have to look at different opportunities, and there are numerous opportunities. And I'd like to thank you for being here today. Well, thank you very much. You go out there wide-eyed and uh, bushy-tailed and look for the opportunities and be able to be a little creative, and things will fall into place. I think creativity is there. I'd like to thank Corey again for being here. Thank you, Michael. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. I am the eye in the sky With us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, that he's with us uh, every week to tell us what's going on in our skies, what's going on on our planets, and also scientists, and what's going on that we should know about. Uh, Steve Cates, uh, give us a report for this week. Good morning, John. Good to be with you and the listeners. We go, of course, on the big story of this entire month so far, the Chinese surveillance balloon. And I want to do a little backstory on this because I think most people don't know this. Of course, the F-22s that came out of the first fighter wing out of Langley Air Force Base, their call signs were Frank 1 and Frank 2. But why? Well, that's on in honor, John, of Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr., who was known as Arizona's balloon buster, 
Way back in World War I, he shot down 14 German balloons. So that's a tribute to him. And I live just very close out here in Arizona to the namesake, the Air Force Base, Luke Air Force Base. I thought that's quite interesting. The device used was probably an AIM-9X Sidewinder missile, but maybe not the kind of explosive missile that many people would imagine if they watch movies of dogfights and Top Gun. It was probably what's called a kinetic-type vehicle missile, meaning it's something that actually punctures the balloon. And the reason for that, John, is so that they don't destroy the platform. Now, another part of this story, which is quite interesting, is everybody's wondering why didn't the Biden administration shoot down this platform immediately over the United States? Well, we have some assets in the sky, and I'm not defending the Biden administration. We have these aircraft known as U-2Rs. They're the next generation of U-2 so-called spy planes called Dragon Ladies. And by good confirmation here, John, there's a gentleman named... Tyler Rogaway, who writes something called The War Zone for The Drive, he reports this very accurately, that two of these U-2R spy planes were actually in contact with this balloon. They can fly higher than the balloon. And allegedly, John, they jammed the signals of what this balloon was doing. So that may be one of the reasons why we didn't shoot it down as early as thought. I think that's quite fascinating, don't you? That is very interesting. And Steve Cates, I, I, I wish we yes. knew the absolute truth because the, the government takes so many so many things and puts it under you know top secret secret top secret ultra top sure. secret and uh, i think the american people deserve to know the truth that's just my personal opinion well john i agree wholeheartedly with you but a little bit more about these u2r spy planes called dragon ladies they have electronic platforms called senior glass and what's that if you take a look at take an image or see one of these u2r's they have all these blisters and bubbles on the side of the airplane they're single intelligence platforms, and they have things on them that get technical. One of them is called Signature or Synthetic Aperture Radar, which can actually penetrate the ground. But more importantly, it appears now that this balloon, I can't confirm this, I'm trying to get confirmation, always telling the truth here, that that balloon platform may have been transmitting information, obviously, up into outer space, because what good is it if they know they never get the platform back? So our American aircraft, the U-2Rs, apparently had the ability to jam and also jammed some of this conversation that, you know, they were probably taking back and forth to China. But, John, this is not late-breaking news. You know this, and the rest of the audience probably heard it. I'm hearing reports that there may be some American technology on board this particular spy platform. And if so, who the heck's been doing this and working with the Chinese in coordination with this? I think, obviously, this needs further investigation. You know, on 1947, Roswell, after Roswell, Science moved at a, uh, should we say, warp speed? Yes, it did. So I wonder what we really came down at Roswell. That, not that well, we know for a fact, but we, science did move at warp speed. And they yes, had yeah. these engineers that worked for uh, uh, some of our technology companies, AT&T and IT&T and uh, all those uh, companies that were given things by uh, uh, the quasi-CIA at that time to further develop, and that's where the transistor came from. Well, it's funny you mention this, John. I was very close to a gentleman named Colonel Joe Kittinger, and God rest his soul, he just passed away about a, a month or so ago. Who was he? He was very much in Ros involved with the Roswell incident, and I always talked to him. would always go down to Florida to visit him. But Colonel Joe, talking about balloons, did something even more amazing. Back on August the 16th, 1960, he jumped from a high balloon at 102,800 feet and can you imagine this? I mean, this man's a living legend still. 
His free fall was four and a half minutes, and his body went 714 miles per hour. He only opened his parachute at 18,000 feet. He was beaten by an Austrian-German gentleman named Felix Baumgartner, who did that in 2012 at a little higher altitude. But the reason I mention that, you're so right. Where did we get all this advanced technology? I mean, it goes all the way into the conspiracy theory about how allegedly alien spacecraft visited in exchange with people from Earth. I mean, this I don't necessarily believe, but opening our minds to talk about what might have happened, you're so right. But Colonel Joe would never ask, answer me those questions. He was involved in the recovery of whatever the alleged object was that was captured. And that's such a strange story that we always want to continue to talk about. But you're it's, right. It's going to go on the list. Who yes. killed John Kennedy? And sure. where do, what was the UFO at uh, Roswell? That's on our list. And, and hopefully in the near future, hopefully we'll find out something. Absolutely, John. I just want to let everybody know more information on this topic will be posted very shortly at WABCRadio.com for the Dr. Sky blog. And as we always say, John, always remember what? Keep your eyes to the skies and simply this. I'm proud to say it. If it's in the sky, I'm your guy. How about that? Well, thank you, Steve Cates. And uh, uh, make sure you put on your blog. Uh, I heard that yes. Friday afternoon, the United States shot down something over Alaska. You'll have people go to your blog to find out what the heck did we shoot down in Alaska on Friday. John, we'll be doing that, and thank you for having me on the show. We wish everybody a great opportunity to see these February skies. And don't forget, look at Venus and Jupiter as they get closer and closer in the southwest. A beautiful treat as you look into the skies after sunset. Well, have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. What is today is Eric Schofler. And... Uh, Let's hear what's going on in New Jersey. He is a New Jersey Democratic strategist, and I want to hear the Democratic point of view of New Jersey. Eric, er, by the way, Eric is my partner in the Ferry Hawks, and he'll talk about that afterwards, along with the New York Yankees, and we're proud to be partners with the Yankees. Uh, Eric, let's talk about New Jersey. You've been representing various people in New Jersey for such a long time. A couple of weeks ago, we had the, the GOP point of view from Jersey. I like the Democratic point of view. Uh, thank you, John. New Jersey is such a fascinating state for Democrats because it's, it's a blue state and Democrats have always been in control, but we're slipping a little bit. Uh, in the last election, Democrats lost some seats in the Assembly, lost one seat in the Senate, and we have an election coming up in six months. So it is a battleground state in an off-year election where the mood of the country and you know middle-class working New Jersey, a lot of common-sense Democrats who switch their votes, a lot of independents, get to decide whether Democrats get to stay in control or not. Uh, understood. And uh, right now, uh, Governor Murphy is the governor. And uh, how do you feel he's doing? Governor Murphy's consistently done a good job, really came on strong during COVID, and his numbers have really responded as people really approve of the way he did COVID. New Jersey's always a tough state for Democrats because it's, it's an expensive cost of living state and that is something that democrats and republicans both struggle to get a hold of high property taxes you know difficult regulations um, a challenging business environment so democrats always face that issue of are we doing enough on affordability and are we making new jersey a place where people can raise their kids and keep them here republicans seek to exploit that democrats in the legislature senate, senate president scatari speaker coughlin both come from very working class areas union county middlesex their agenda is about affordability Governors pledge no new taxes this year in an election year. We have a budget coming up in three months, so we'll see. Understood. And uh, the other thing, the state, uh, you have a, a state Senate and assembly like other states? 
Senate, state Senate's controlled by the Democrats, 24-16, and the Assembly is controlled 40, uh, 45-25, I think, with the Assembly. But we did lose seats in the Assembly last time as Democrats, so it's tough. This is a, We just redid our map, John, so this will be the first time everyone's running in new districts, which always injects a little bit of uncertainty into the process. New York, New York City, New York State, lost 485,000 taxpayers in the last um, uh, 24 months. How is New Jersey faring? We don't see numbers that high. There's always the flight to Florida. We see that all the time. But New Jersey is such a desirable place to live. There's always new younger families wanting to come here. But both parties grapple with, you know, how expensive it is and how do we reduce that cost of living? Great education, great location, great job opportunities. That keeps a lot of people here, but as they get wealthier or maybe older, we run that risk where they retire and leave the state. So it's definitely a problem for both our states. Understood. And uh, tell us uh, Atlantic City. Atlantic City was supposed to, gambling was supposed to solve New Jersey's problems. <laughs> Has it solved New Jersey's problems? It's the goose that gives and then doesn't give. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's solved. It's been, a great, it's been great for the state. Jobs, supports prescription drug programs. It hasn't ever realized that full potential that everybody hoped it would be in terms of becoming this mecca tourism destination. Sports gambling has been huge for it. There's been a lot of new investments, uh, new casinos, Hard Rock, uh, Borgata years ago, Revel, that are really changing the face of Atlantic City. But, it, you know, I think it's still a work in progress. Very much so. And today is Super Bowl. Uh, I guess Atlantic City is going to have a heyday of all the betting. I mean, it, 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 it's like un-American not to bet in the game. Well, it's become so commonplace for all of us. And betting is different. And it's been a boon for Atlantic City because now what people can do is you don't just bet on the outcome. You bet on whether they'll catch a touchdown in the first quarter or the second quarter. How many yards will someone get? So prop betting changes how we consume sports. And it is a lifeline for a lot of these casinos that are now engaging a new, new, new customers in different ways. And you can do it from home. And now you have a new home besides hanging around in New Jersey, Staten Island. You run uh, the Ferry Hawks, the, the, the big team uh, which partners with the Yankees and, uh, and, and ourselves, myself, uh, on uh, Staten Island, and it's become the number one team in Staten Island. And give us a report. When is opening day? How can people buy tickets? What's going on? We love Staten Island. It is the same. And you have a new manager. We have a new manager, uh, brand new you know, turf field. The city's putting in brand new seats as we speak. But Staten Island's a great baseball town. It's a great sports town. And our team, is we're like the third best team in baseball behind the Yankees and the Mets. So we just hired Homer Bush. Of the 19, a Yankee. A Yankee. There is that Yankee excellence, the Yankee mystique. He won a World Series in 1998. He played for Joe Torre. I mean, what better, what better teaching do you want to get than hire someone who learned to manage under Joe Torre? He's busy building the roster right now. We just finished a big Winter Lantern Festival. We had over 30,000 people at the stadium. We have NYU. We're hoping to be a bigger partner. Wagner College, College of Staten Island. They're all playing baseball in the stadium right now. And we open up April 28th, Staten Island University Hospital Community Park. They're a part of the Northwell system. We will be April 28th. You can buy your tickets at ferryhawks.com. But, John, we've got a lot of events that align with where our values are and where Staten Island values. We're going to have a night honoring NYPD, a night honoring FDNY, a huge event honoring the veterans on Staten Island with a salute to service. 
a lot of exciting things planned for the stadium and a fast, new, aggressive baseball team. Eric Scheffler, thank you for the report. Thank you for the report on New Jersey and the Ferry Hawks. I get uh, two for the price of one with you. Go Ferry Hawks. Go John Katzmatidis. Go WABC. Thank you so much, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. I appreciate that. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. Good morning. With us today is former Congressman Peter King, one common sense uh, individual, and uh, we haven't heard Peter King's comments yet on the State of the Union, and uh, let's get a common sense uh, uh, evaluation. Uh, Peter King, welcome to the show. Sunday morning. I hope you had your cup of coffee already. Uh, give us your evaluation of where the heck you think our, our country is in, in, in relationship to the world and where are we going? John, I was very disappointed in the State of the Union uh, that uh, President Biden had an opportunity to reach out more to Republicans. Listen, he can make his partisan points. I understand that. I was there when Bill Clinton was the president, Newt Gingrich was the speaker, and they were most times hostile toward each other. But in these type speeches, President Clinton would say enough to keep the Democrats happy, but then he would find a way to reach out to Republicans. And uh, specifically after the Republicans took back to Congress in 1994, the following year, he and Newt Gingrich started working together. They actually ended up, uh, I guess, in 1996 with a balanced budget with welfare reform. And he was able to get it done based on the way President Biden was the other day accusing the Republicans of want to do away with Social Security, uh, taking cheap shots like that. Uh, I thought he was also over the top when it came to being critical of the police. Uh, there was very little room there at all to start anything constructive. I thought Kevin McCarthy has gone out of his way as the Republican leader, as the speaker, to meet with President Biden to say he wants to find ways to compromise. And so I, I think Joe Biden really disappointed. I think it's unfortunate that some Republicans took the bait and started heckling the president, calling him a liar. Uh, I think the average American watching that makes it you know, looks like a gong show or a circus. So I think they, they really missed the opportunity by doing that. Uh, president Biden, by not being uh, offering more of a compromise and by some Republicans, by taking the bait and yelling out at Joe Biden, so the American people looking at it say, you know, there's no leadership coming from anywhere. And I feel bad for Kevin McCarthy because he basically wanted his people, his uh, members to be respectful and quiet and uh, let the president say what he had to. And then afterwards, you do your news conferences, you put out your statements and you say where you disagree with the president. But don't create sympathy for him. And, and what I was disappointed in, look, I, I respect the president of the United States because he is the president. And uh, what I was disappointed in, uh, where he started uh, yelling uh, about uh, uh, trying to drive away Social Security and Medicare, which is not true. Uh, This is uh, something that that they have to review between 
all the all the uh, Democrats and all the Republicans, because the problem is people are living longer, and they were going to raise the, the the retirement age a little bit to reflect uh, the longer lifespan. Isn't that true? Yeah, listen, uh, the idea here is to save Social Security. You're right. People are living much longer than they did before. Uh, the Social Security fund is going to be running out of money. And this has nothing to do with borrowing money from Social Security at all. The fact is, people are living longer. Uh, and there's also less people in the workforce. Used to be, uh, you know, when Social Security is founded, you have five, six, seven children in a family. Who got, who, well, five or six, seven people in a family are working. And then you have people with a lifespan. You go somewhere in maybe 65 or 66. Now you have people living well into their 80s. You have maybe two people in a family working. So there's less workers, there's more retirees, and there's going to be a real issue. And how do you work around that? Ronald Reagan and Chip O'Neill were able to do that. They were able to find a compromise. Uh, there's some, some changes made as far as retirement age, affecting no one at all who is on Social Security now or who would be going on it in the near future. The idea was to protect future generations. And Joe Biden, they trivialize the saying Republicans wanted to end Social Security and Medicare. That's really, it's, it's wrong. It's disgraceful. I think that. the president of the United States has to bring the American people together, not further divide them. And that's my only big beef with the president. Uh, I mean, my other beef is allowing uh, those, those borders to be open. A country without borders is not a country. It's not a country. And as we pointed out, I think there's been more people killed from fentanyl just in the last year which basically comes across the border, unfortunately, that were killed in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and Korea all, all together. So this is really, uh, uh, again, it is a national disgrace. It's a national uh, crisis. And the president barely mentioned it. He barely mentioned China. Uh, and uh, it was, I thought it was, listen, there's a time and place for politics and the State of the Union. There's always going to be some politics, but statesmanship should predominate. And in this case, it was all politics and the president i think made a very big mistake i guess i was disappointed in that uh and just we have to bring the country together uh, congressman i mean uh and it, we have bigger enemies to worry about we should not be each other's enemy when we're not fighting a civil war we should be united i i liked the vote that they took censuring china tell oh tell everybody what what that vote was yeah, basically, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, and the Republican Party introduced a resolution, a bipartisan resolution, basically condemning China and saying what a threat China is to the United States. And uh, that was passed by a vote of 419 to nothing. And Kevin McCarthy would not allow Republicans to put language in there criticizing Biden, because he said on an issue like this, uh, we should be united, not taking partisan shots. I think Kevin showed real statesmanship there. I give him credit for that. And it did show a sense of unity that the country has not had for a while. So to me, congratulations to Kevin McCarthy for showing the type of common sense leadership that's necessary. Anything else you want to tell the American people? No, John, I think, again, you're talking about common sense. I think one area we are seeing it here in New York is I think Eric Adams is definitely uh, reaching out to the middle ground. He's uh, condemning the woke people in his party, both for government reasons and also political reasons. He feels that they're scaring away uh, you know, different ethnic groups by being so woke by the talk of defunding the police that they're losing uh, groups that traditionally have been voting Democrat and now they're, you know, they're chasing voters away. So I give Eric Adams for having the guts to stand up to the crazy elements in his own party. 
Well, Congressman uh, Peter King, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you, John. Have a great Take day. Care. With us today is uh, former Governor David Patterson, and uh, we're trying to figure out what's going on in Albany, what's going on in our state, and is our state and city in New York going to be a better place to live in the future? Governor, Sunday morning, you're drinking your, 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 your coffee, you're drinking your tea. Tell us what's going on. How do you feel? Well, John, as I continue to drink my tea, it's what continues to go on, which is that the saga governor filling the appointment of a chief judge to the Court of Appeals of the state of New York. The state of New York is the only state that its highest court is not the state Supreme Court. It's the Court of Appeals. And a, uh, um, a minority committee member on the Judiciary Committee, uh, Senator Palumbo, has brought an action against the Senate, against the, the majority, the Senate Democrats, because after Judge LaSalle lost in the committee vote, they closed down his nomination. In other words, they refused to bring him to the floor of the Senate. Now, this makes uh, little sense because the state constitution mirrors the federal constitution where, for instance, in 1987, um, Judge Robert Bork, he was shut down in committee. He was a Reagan appointee. But the committee referred it to the Senate, Senate where they voted again, and he was not confirmed. Um, a lot of people didn't like it, but at least in that case, they respected the process. In this case, the Democrats, unfortunately, cannot cite any reason why uh, Mr. LaSalle's nomination didn't go to the full Senate, it, especially since the language mirrors that of the United States Constitution. Now, I'll say this very quickly, John. I once appointed someone to a commission, and this person, when they got in front of the Senate committee just to be interviewed, decided to tell off the senators and was promptly voted down. Now, there was in that particular case, because it wasn't at the level of chief judge or something like that, that was the end of my nomination. And I then uh, contacted the governor-elect, uh, Andrew Cuomo, and told him that that nomination had failed, so he should start thinking about who he would like there. So that's an example where that, that's probably the type of example that they're trying to follow here, but the breadth of the Court of Appeals and the high honor to serve on it, uh, I thought, got sullied through this process. Governor Hochul did not bring this action. Um, I, he probably did not want to sue other Democrats. That's probably what that was about. So this suit is proper, and he will win. It's not a political process. It's a constitutional one. Crime. Is it still going on? I mean, I saw, I saw on Friday, Thursday or Friday, uh, somebody shot uh, in Times Square. And uh, tell us about what, what your feelings are. There was a shooting in Times Square uh, late Thursday afternoon. Uh, you know, I think the isolated uh, shootings, uh, you can report them. But I think the uh, the reports are that the overall crime is somewhat reduced right now. 
But of course, this week, you wouldn't even really want to think about it because of the tragic uh, murder of the police officer in Brooklyn. And uh, and the fact that the person who murdered him had been uh, arrested 13 other times and convicted several of them for other offenses. So it goes back to your whole theory, John, that there aren't really that many criminals. It's just that they get more chances to wreak havoc on our city and our state. And um, and we've got to find a way to um, pick between the people who perhaps committed a wrong act at some point in their life. And it's a blemish on their record, but it's the only thing they ever did. And, uh, you know, when they paid their debt to society, we let them move on. And then people who time after time that they get out in the morning and they're back in the evening because they've committed another crime. And that's what I think. That's where I think there can be some uh, understanding between both sides of the aisle that we're not really talking about policy as much as we're talking about certain individuals where there needs to be greater incarceration to protect society from them. To be fair to the legislators, the bail reform that they worked on, what they were looking for was not to have people that didn't have enough cash to get out for relatively small offenses. Well, they covered that. The criticism that they got was that they not, did not go further and give judges discretion. And that makes New York State the only state that hasn't done that. But I think we could really learn something from our neighbors across the bridge in New Jersey and our neighbors and rivals from 3,000 miles away in California because they actually have, in a sense, a scale that determines uh, based on the crime and who the defendant is, in other words, prior acts, that the judges would have more discretion uh, because it, it, if you're going to be the one state that separates themselves from the rest of the union, you're going to get criticism all the time. Well, Governor, uh, ex-Governor Patterson, I hope, I uh, wish it was an ex, but you're a common sense guy. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for what you've done for our state and our city and continue to speak out for it. And we'll talk again real soon. Take care, John. Thank you. You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers interviewed by New York's first citizen. It's the Cats Roundtable. State Senator Anthony Palumbo on the line, and he's important. He's important because he's behind the lawsuit from state Senate uh, Republicans that have sued today to make sure that the full Senate gets an up or down vote. Keyword: full Senate on Judge uh, LaSalle. Uh, Senator, State Senator, are you with us? I am, and thanks for having me. And Mr. Katsimatidis is listening to you, and he's here with us live as well. So what is this all about? Why did you find that this lawsuit, and Governor Patterson is listening, was absolutely necessary? Sure. Well, the, the New York State Constitution is, is quite clear about this. Judicial nominations must be considered before this full state sentence, uh, Senate. So the Judiciary Committee, which provides what's called advice and consent, um, no matter of its size, discharges or, or rules on a judicial nominee, they must within 30 days, and under our state constitution, they must then la- allow the Senate, um, the full Senate, to vote, all 63 members. Um, curiously, 
the Democratic majority, and I actually debated the rule change on our first day when we're doing housekeeping. Um, they changed the rules to really nothing significant, all um, somewhat clerical changes, but they one substantive one was the body of the Judiciary Committee. They added four members, three Democrats and one Republican. Um, uh, the the committee assignments are supposed to be proportionate to the full Senate, two to one. It's 42 Democrats, 21 Republicans. So I questioned, said, how, why do we have three to one instead of two to one? That's quite interesting. Um, got pretty much a non-answer from the um, the floor leader, Mike Giannaris from Queens. Um, and, it, of course, it went through and was voted in. All three of those members that took – yes, go ahead. It's, uh, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. Welcome back to Cats at Night. I want to tell you what I find absolutely outrageous is not only the fact that they made it three to one, but they put people on the committee to stack the committee who had already said that they were going against Judge LaSalle. So it was never an opportunity to give him a full and fair hearing on the merits to hear what his views were, to talk about what his record was. What they did is they made sure that the outcome was fixed. So what they did is they packed the committee and now try to stop the Senate from exercising its prerogatives, just the whole Senate, not just the Democrats, and also denying the, the governor of the state of New York her prerogatives. You ought to be commended for doing this lawsuit because the governor has just backed off on her commitment to file a lawsuit. You are vindicating the rights not only of the, the, the entire state Senate, but the governorship as well. What say you? Well, thank you, Judge. And you know what? And, and I appreciate that. And that's really the point. It's not even so much the partisan aspect of it that the Constitution prescribes a full vote. He's entitled to an up or down vote by the full Senate. Um, and you equate this to the United States Constitution with Robert Bork. He went through the Judiciary Committee with more negative votes than positive votes. He still went to the floor and they didn't confirm him. So it's not even so much my personal feelings regarding um, the nominee or um, really political aspects of it. The bottom line is um, it should go to the full Senate uh, because the Constitution requires it, period. And that's really the point of this. It's a, it's a declaratory judgment action, which is just going to ultimately ask the court um, what say you. Bottom line. Bottom line, bottom line, guys, the state Senate is trying to cook the books because the Constitution says the Senate. It doesn't say the judicial part of the Senate. Full stop. With us today is Zach Williams, a star reporter for the New York Post, doing reporting on Albany that so many things are happening. Uh, Zach Williams, there's so many things happening in Albany, I don't know where to start. And I understand <laughs> the Speaker of the Assembly doesn't like you. Why? You're a nice guy. Well, it's it's a real shame that the that Speaker Carl Hasty has decided to boycott the New York Post um, over some you know the the editorial board they wrote wrote about his position on raise the age and this uh, criminal justice reform that went into effect a couple of years ago and there are some arguable defects and the Speaker really took offense to it and decided to take it out on me. I wanted to ask him a question or two at some recent gaggles about some other parts of criminal justice reforms in the budget, charter schools, and a couple little power plays he's doing with his own chamber's rules, but he wasn't having it. He says it's not uh, personal, but, you know, um, I think editorial boards, you know, ought to, you know, if he's got an issue with them, he ought to take it up with them and just let, you know, reporters uh, ask the questions. But uh, if you want to join us on the high road, 
moving forward, uh, we'd be uh, happy to uh, work with them to, uh, you know, just kind of get back to doing the job. I had uh, but, Speaker Hasty on my radio show a few years ago, and I like the guy. He's a very nice man. Uh, he's a Star Trek fan, uh, fan which uh, makes him a friend of mine because I always liked Star Trek. But, but uh, my only problem is that I felt that uh, some of his assembly members that uh, uh, are very soft on crime, I'm upset about that because... For whom do the bells toll? I keep saying this. The violent criminals or the eight and a half million New Yorkers that want to be safe? What say you? Well, I'll say to anybody that's upset with coverage in the New York Post, you know, just bring it up. Let's argue it on the merits. And, you know, if he's got issues with my reporting, let's hear it. But as far as I know, you know, his only beef is with the editorial board and you know, I'm not a member of that. I'm just the guy up there in the halls asking questions. You're absolutely and, you correct. Know, Arguing you know, on the merits. Broader issues with the speaker, um, you know, separately. Um, members of the Legislative Correspondents Association have also raised, you know, the issue of, you know, the time has come to go back to the pre-pandemic norms in terms of press access in the chambers. You know, there's certain areas where we used to be able to go. COVID hit, rightfully, they said, you can't go there. We got to control the virus, et cetera. But it's three years later and it's time to restore that as well. That's a separate issue. Um, you know, the, um, then, you know, his, his issues with the New York post, but at the same time, you know, the, the speaker has numerous opportunities right now to really demonstrate his commitment to transparency and an open press. And, um, you know, I, for one, am just, uh, looking forward to when he, you know, starts taking questions from me again. And like I said, I like the guy. He's a very nice guy. All I want is law and order. That's all I want. There's so many other things going on. The budget. What the heck is going on with the budget? Does, does Governor Hochul realize she has a lot of power over the legislature on the budget? It's always hard to say with this governor of ours, what are we going to do with her? Because she has so many fights going on, left, right. You know, all of this is happening um, within the context of this, this battle for the nomination of Hector LaSalle. But separately, you know, she's, she's taken on the progressive <laughs> The progressive left over charter schools, angering the you know one of the few unions, United Federation of Teachers, that wasn't already against her for the, the LaSalle nomination. So she's got to fight with them, one of the most powerful unions now in the state. And then separately towards her political right, she's got to fight uh, these suburban Republicans that are up in arms over her housing plan and the idea that Albany should be able to set percentage um, targets for increasing their housing supply. You know, Hochul is proposing, hey, every municipality downstate has to increase their housing by 3% each year. And a separate proposal says, you know, if within areas, um, within a half mile of transit stations, you know, you even got to increase housing even more. Now they say it usurps local control, the governor says, I'm not telling you how to do it. It's just we got to meet these goals and we need housing, which everyone seemingly agrees. But, you know, suburbanites surely do not like to be told what to do <laughs> in Albany. And by the way, they hate her proposal for the, to increase that commuter tax. You know, of all the things for her to bring up, she, you know, in the budget, she's proposing to increase this, um, you know, what Republicans once called the commuter tax, which is, you know, put on employers for people that, uh, com you know, commute into the city. Now, if you've got uh, a long memory like mine, you might recall that this is precisely the tax 
that killed Senate Democrats like 10 years ago and cost them a state Senate majority. Well, I remember he killed one of my best friends uh, was uh, Spano, who was the uh, Westchester County executive. And he didn't he they they tried to put Section 8 housing, I believe, in Westchester. He lost the election. I was standing next to him. He never realized that was such a big issue. Well, and that's, you know, there's there's good policy and there's good politics. And we can argue about what, you know, what is good policy. But I think at the very least, everyone agrees we need more housing downstate. Population increasing, there's shortage, prices are crazy. You know, obviously developers want to build. Um, and it's just, you know, really hard at times, you know, at the local level to, you know, find the right place where you can actually make it happen practically without politicians, you know, being willing to uh, take some risks. Now, Hochul, to her credit, is definitely taking some risks here, you know. You need common well, sense, and and Hochul's already elected to a four-year position, so is she, ta- is she taking uh, advantage of that? You know, she's the governor, and, <laughs> and that's what governors are wont to do. I would just say, you know, while I think the suburban critics um, have some legitimate grievances, um, you know, you've got to keep in mind just how little amount of housing in places like Long Island has been built by these local uh, municipalities, you know. If, if the existing rules and status quo were so great for housing, we wouldn't have a housing crisis. Everyone agrees we got that. So something's got to change. And the governor, for her part, is proposing something. And, you know, it seems like in politics, if you're angering someone, you're probably doing at least something right. But we'll see how right she is in the weeks ahead. I understood. Uh, we got a minute left. Anything else uh, uh, you want to tell the people? Well, I would just say, you know, keep an eye on, you know, um, Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty and State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins and how they might or might not team up in the coming weeks as we approach that April 1st state budget deadline. You know, the governor has a lot of power, but it's pretty tough for a governor to take on a united legislature, especially when they got super majorities that can override her veto. But... That requires all the Democrats to row together, and uh, history shows how, uh, how tough it is sometimes for Democrats to get along. Well, Zach Williams, uh, star reporter, editor, and all of the above for the New York Post uh, reporting on Albany, thank you so much, and we'll catch up with you again soon. And tell us, you're almost in the New York Post every day, so if somebody wants to catch up with you on a daily basis, they just go to New York Post and uh, read your columns. Zach reports with an H. Thank you so much, and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.